I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Saturday School. We're recording live at the San Diego Asian Film Festival, and we have a very, very special guest today, Lee Ann Kim. Well, hello. The creator and original executive director of the San Diego Film Festival, which is turning 18 this year. I know, it's legal. I know, I was just saying your baby film festival is now a legal adult. Yes, it can go out and buy cigarettes and vote. (laughs) I know, it's so crazy. We're very, very excited because we just finished our third season of Saturday School on Asian American music movies. And we knew that we needed to talk about Mulan at some point. And just sort of children's programming in general, because I think when we think about musicals, a lot of times we kind of forget about kids stuff and Disney movies, even though we know it's there, but I think we maybe think of it in a different category. At least I do. Yeah, because usually when we think about musicals, it's people breaking out into song, and there's something inherently unrealistic about it. But with animation, none of it's supposed to be realistic, so it makes sense. Why not break into the song? You already have dragons. But we've definitely been thinking about Mulan. We realized this is actually an opportunity to talk about other topics beyond just music and movies and Asian Americans and music. We should be talking about what are kids' films for Asian Americans, by Asian Americans. So that's the conversation that I'd love to have today. And in particular, as somebody who does not have kids... That you know um, of. That I know of. <laughs> that have found me yet. You're um, so bad, Ada. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that I would like to have kids one day. Ladies. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. You must but be getting some pressure. How, how can you tell? <laughs> From me? No, f- oh. no, from his mom and dad. This is not the first time this has come up on this podcast. <laughs> oh, my I goodness. Know. I know. It's so um, mean. So that pressure has combined with my love of film and my love of curation and Asian American cinema. And really, like, I'd love to have a conversation with the two of you because, first of all, I'm, it's kind of an honor to have both of you on a panel like this because I can't think of two people who have more shaped my being where I am now at an Asian American Film Festival than Ada. And oh, wow. Um, wow. So, so in terms of people who are who I trust to have conversations about Asian American media, like you two are it. Um, But also you two are parents of multiple human children who are Asian American. (laughs) And furry children too. But also specifically because the two of you have invested so much of your careers into thinking about Asian American representation Mm -hmm. and how the media affects young people and affects all people. So I'm curious about how we raise children with Asian American media. So that's kind of the big topic we're gonna to have today. So maybe we'll just start off with some introductory questions. For instance, we grew up in a different generation than part of your kids do now in terms of access to media. Do you remember the first time that you watched a film and you recognized it as representing you or as Asian American or as Asian? And like, how old were you when that happened? Uh, I think the first one was They Call Me Bruce, (laughs) right? And there's that Korean actor, what was his name? Johnny Johnny Yoon. Johnny Yoon. And my dad would tell me I used to gulp with Johnny Yoon. And, And I was... I was like, oh, so because there was that connection that Johnny Yoon had with my dad, I feel like They Call Me Bruce was the first movie where I thought, oh, okay, I can relate to this person because my father personally knows him. But, you know, growing up in the Midwest back in the 70s, you're acutely aware that you're different as an Asian American, right? 
But I don't know if I grew up watching television and movies and said, oh, there's that Asian person I can relate. So there were shows like Courtship of Eddie's Father, and they had this Asian-American maid. Um, do, you, do you even know who I'm talking about? No, this is nope. old, very, very old school. And then they had Happy Days, and they had Pat Morita on Happy Days. And then, of course, you know Bruce Lee. And then there was Connie Chung. So there were different kinds of you know Asian representation that I remember growing up, but I never felt like I related to them, of course, until the Joy Luck Club. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that took a long time because right. Joy Luck Club came out... 93, 93. Yeah, so I was already in college by that time. So that's many years of not feeling like I was being represented or that I can relate to characters on the screen. The other big one, of course, during high school was Sixteen Candles and the whole Long Duck Dong character. But it didn't impact me as much because that really affected people like my husband, who's Korean-American and who hated that character because everyone just assumed that he was like that. And I think it's significant then that you became more self-conscious about it. You were already in college, probably when you were becoming self-conscious about a lot of things Asian-American not just the media. Yes, and obviously there weren't film festivals that I can go to or content that I can find necessarily that were Asian or Asian American, but I had different outlets. So throughout high school, I was on the speech team and then I did a lot of theater. Funny thing, when I was in high school, I did original comedy and I did this piece, original piece called The Unchinkables, <laughs> which was based on The Untouchables. Wow. Right? And one of the main characters was named Dinga and his last name was Ling. But I used my Asian ness in high school and I did very well with this original comedy piece on the speech team because this was even before Margaret Cho was doing this. I kind of used it, the marginalization that I felt throughout my childhood, and I turned that around into comedy, and white people just ate it up, you know? Well, that's very Johnny Yoon. <laughs> it, it is very Johnny Yoon, you know? So even though I didn't feel like I was being represented, interestingly, now that I think about it, I created my own content yeah. to kind of express myself. So funny. Ada? I was thinking about this. I don't think I had that consciousness for a very long time growing up in the 80s and 90s. I bet I did see Asian characters we've talked about before, like Stephanie's boyfriend on Full House. My favorite. Which made a big impact on you, but I had forgotten about him, you know? So I'm sure I saw a lot of stuff, but I just didn't think about it. And part of it is I grew up in the Bay Area in California, so I think it was like a twofold thing where, one, there was a pretty big Asian-American community but not only that, I've been thinking about it more recently. I think I always attribute it to there being an Asian American community, but I think the other half of it is too that like the non-Asian American community were people who are used to Asian Americans around, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that there were Asian Americans around all the time, but I just was lucky enough to grow up in an atmosphere where I didn't necessarily need to think about it. So maybe one of the first times was much later when I was watching Ally McBeal. I was a really big Ally McBeal fan. Mm -hmm. um, and Lucy Liu came on second season. And it's not necessarily that I related to her because she was such like a crazy character. Did you, any of you guys watch Ally McBeal? Oh, yeah. 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 She was like mean. Like all the characters on Ally McBeal were crazy, but she... Like, she was um, bitchy. Yeah, yeah. But she was also funny. She was funny and she played in that world very well. And I remember thinking, oh, it's, a, it's an Asian girl. But even I was talking to Brian earlier. I was a really big Gilmore Girls fan. 
And it didn't occur to me until way, way, way later when I was working for Asian Pacific Arts that maybe I should have related to the Lane Kim character. Because I honestly didn't because she was this kind of like rock and roll girl like, and she grew up kind of being scared of her mother. And I loved her storyline. I loved Emily Kuroda, Mrs. Kim. I just loved them, but I didn't necessarily relate to them. But now I'm like, oh, I guess that was kind of like a big deal. Yeah. So this is interesting. So, so that was in high school, probably, when Ally McBeal came out. Yeah. What about you, Brian? We've talked about Stephanie's Asian boyfriend on Full House. Did, she, um, did he actually have a long arc? Or? Not really, but he was, came up every once in a while. <laughs> but of course, uh, I was really into Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, Short Round. So this is, for me, that murky area. Before, I had a kind of consciousness both of, does this represent me, but also of, is this actually a terrible representation? <laughs> I was drawn to him, probably because he looked familiar to me. And so he was special to me. I just couldn't talk about why. And it didn't matter to me why. It was just, he was a character I liked more than others. I love this murkiness, but it's also a murkiness that makes it so hard for us to talk about. And it's so hard for me as a film festival curator to mm -hmm. try to cater to. It's this amorphousness that, again, like, as a non-parent, I don't know how you do it because it's like 18 years of amorphousness. <laughs> you mean in terms of like shaping their um, or, or just or? just like being able to talk about issues or like from a point of purity of like everyone's a human being to at some point needing to. I feel like you're setting me too much as an expert on this because my kids are three and nine months. Okay, oh, so this this, this is good to point out. There was zero talk about race. There's a lot of talk about how it's bedtime mm -hmm. and you need to eat. <laughs> it's, it's about getting things done. It really is about getting things done. And I think that we do live in this California bubble, the bubble that you were talking about, Ada, while growing up. Because, you know, my kids went into a preschool that was run by South Asians. So was mine. And they started every day with meditation and yoga, you know, and they were surrounded by black and South Asian kids and Latino kids. And, you know, they went through a Chinese immersion public school, you know, again, surrounded by tons of Asians and African-Americans and Latinos and a few white people in there, you mm -hmm. know, here and there. So... I always felt like I didn't have to talk to them about race. And then here, their mother is not only a broadcast journalist, but she's also running the Asian Film Festival. So I don't know, I just assumed that they would find a sense of pride somewhere within themselves, or they would figure out that being a person of color is how meaningful that is, and our Korean heritage, how meaningful that is. <laughs> And it wasn't until they were 9 and 10 that I found out the truth. And the truth is that they had none of that consciousness. And, and in fact, um, it was on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, you know, the day off from school where you usually go to, like, Legoland, you know. I decided for the first time ever that we would sit down and watch something together about Martin Luther King Jr on his birthday, oh. and we watched an animation called uh, My Friend Martin, and afterwards my kids uh, had a conversation, <laughs> we, we laugh about this, and they said, well mom, they really treated black people so badly back then, and I said, yes they did, and it's, you know, they're still fighting the good fight, and they said, well, at least if we lived during that era, at least we would be in the whites only line, <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? Well." because we're white. And I almost shit a brick. <laughs> I, I, I actually think I started crying. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because of the realization that hit me, like 
do you not know who I am? Do you not know what I do for a living? Do you not see the community in which you are in that we've worked so proudly to get you in? What do you mean you're white? You know, I really had to question that. And it's not their fault, it's my fault. We just assumed that they knew how to talk about these issues, that they cared about these issues. And I said, well, what do you mean you're white? They said, well, look at my skin color. It's either black or white, right? So they didn't know that there were shades in between. Um, so that really got me thinking about how do we talk? I know how to talk about what it means to be Asian American to adults mm -hmm. or to high school or college kids. I, have no I had no idea. I had nine, 10 years of parenting experience and I had no idea of how do we explain to our children what it means to be Asian American, and even deeper than that, what it means to be Korean, hmm. you know? And I don't know if I, at that time, I couldn't answer that question, what, what it meant, because it's more than eating kimchi and bulgogi, right? It's more than, um, you know, celebrating the Lunar New Year and getting, you know, money from bowing to your grandparents. So I felt like that, incident two years ago helped me become a born-again Asian American, <laughs> or as I would tell my mom, I'm born-again Korean, because it helped me like really seek those answers specifically for my kids. That's so interesting, because I, I want to know if you learn anything so I can learn from you, but also, yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I probably would do the same thing. I, I wouldn't say it's your fault, because I think at that age, as kids, you don't really think of your parents as complete people, so. <laughs> but then I think about, like, it's not like my parents had any discussion with me about being Asian American. Because they didn't need to. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, why, why did my parents not teach me what it means to be Korean or tell me about Korean history? They, too, did the same thing. They just assumed that, you know, I would know about all these cultures and traditions and this history. We never, ever talked about it. And now I'm opening up those conversations with my parents. And now they're telling me, oh, shit, really, you didn't know? And they regret. And so it's really opened up a new relationship with my own parents. So going back to, like, how do I have these discussions? Well, so we started watching TV together. Oh. I would show them, and i say, oh, oh, look, there's that black person. Watch, they're going to be the first one killed. And sure enough, they were the first ones killed. And they would look at me, and they're like, oh, my God, Mom, you're right. Whoa. So every time, I, I know, this sounds so simple. It sounds so simple. But from a representation standpoint, they are very, very aware of when there are people, especially Asians and black people, on screen, and they are very protective of these characters, but they also automatically assume that that character is going to be a background person or a second or tertiary character, or that they're not going to be a long-standing character in that particular series, right? So they understand where we are right now. This is really fascinating. It's so, so fascinating. So does this make you want to show them more bad examples so that they can learn from them? <laughs> or because, because once they see the pattern, then they'll realize this is actually ingrained in the society we lived in. Or do you want to show them alternatives so their mind is a little bit less pessimistic? So I feel as though they, they choose their own media. So I think as a result of this conversation, they love Fresh Off the Boat. Me they could too. not articulate why. My older son loves, loves it. I mean, they have to watch every new episode every week. And they think it's the funniest thing. And I don't get why they think it's so funny. I mean, it's a funny show, but they especially love the show. And I really think it's because they do see themselves in Eddie and then these other characters. Yeah, they're the ages of the kids. That's, That's right. right. 
And um, also they know that I know Randall and Randall's been to the <laughs> festival. And so they're very proud of that fact. I don't know if they would have liked Fresh Off the Boat as much if we haven't had that conversation. Right, you know what I'm right. saying? And it's funny because I interviewed my son about like, now that your eyes are open, what Asian characters do you remember? And his first one was like Donnie Yen. And I'm like, Donnie Yen? I never showed you a Donnie Yen film. He's like, yeah, he was in Star Wars. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Not isn't it interesting? <laughs> but isn't it interesting how our kids know some of these like really famous characters through these, you know, through this crossover that's happening in Hollywood now, like such as the yeah. case of Donnie Yen. Because he's, I mean, I need to show them real Donnie Yen films so that they know, like, what a real badass he is, right? <laughs> I love that you're teaching your kids through pop culture because that's the whole gimmick of our entire podcast. <laughs> 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 that, we're, that we're, like, forcing your unwilling children to learn about Asian American pop culture. But the idea is, like, learning about your Asian American history through pop culture. Right. But I, I guess to my point, you can't force them to watch what they don't want to watch. And so what you have to do is you have to see what are they watching and when there are opportunities to point something out, that's when we do that. You know, I try to show them blackish. So they're like, I'm not watching blackish. Blackish? That's so racist. <laughs> <laughs> they thought blackish was a racist show because of the name. That's so right? funny. It's, it's funny. So I explained to them that actually using the word black is okay, but they're so hyper aware. And there's, I just love the fact that they are trying to be so PC, but they love that show too. And that show really, Me really too. touches upon serious race issues you know so <laughs> I feel like I have so much in common with your children oh <laughs> well we should all just hang out but I also love I feel like you think of this awakening happening in college but your kids are having it so much earlier well there was something that I did do because I was like okay how do I explain to them what it means to be Asian American and also what it means to be Korean. So I'm now learning how to speak Korean. Oh. Okay, so I'm going through weekly Korean language classes. And I knew somebody who knew somebody, and I found this awesome, awesome Korean heritage camp that's been going on for 40 years in this tiny town in Michigan. And there are these Asian heritage camps all over, right? Especially here in California, but I don't want them hanging out with other Korean kids from California because they live in a bubble. You pull them out and you stick them in the Midwest, they understand what it means to be different, you know, and they feel what that means to be different. And they could appreciate when they come back to California how good they have it here, right? Because most of the kids that are there, they're the only Asian kids that live in their neighborhood. I remember what that felt like. You don't know, but I, I remember know. what that felt like. And it was horrible. You just feel so alone, you feel so alien. And so for my kids to do that, to see other kids like that and interact with them, it helps them also build empathy and compassion, not just for those who are Asian American, but for anybody who looks different. I remember when you told me the story about my friend Martin, and it was, it was mind-blowing to me. But the other thing I immediately thought of was, I'm so glad that that video existed. Yeah. And that it was available on YouTube, and that you even knew about it. I didn't know about it. I just how, how searched. Did you find it? Well, I just searched, right? Because I was like Martin Luther King for kids. <laughs> yeah. And I found this video. And what's interesting is that it's mostly animated, but then it would break into actual black and white news footage scenes of that time. And there must be some kind of copyright issue because during Martin Luther King's great speech on the mall, that part of that movie was completely silent. And so anytime it broke away to the footage, they, they couldn't actually hear him, like the actual real Martin Luther King Jr. speak. 
But the story itself showed, you know, how how difficult it was to be black back then, you know. And I think it's a hard concept for kids in California to understand, <laughs> even when they are people of color. So how do we, you know, teach them that? And we have to show them these stories of suffering, to be mm -hmm. quite honest, suffering and sacrifice to appreciate just kind of how far we've come. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, if you YouTubed Fred Korematsu for kids, what would come up? Have you tried? I don't know if you've tried anything like that. I haven't, but I forced them <laughs> to read. Um, there was a Fred Korematsu comic book that came out, and really? so yes, yeah. So we have that, and they know the story. And you know, um, every once in a while, when they have nothing to do, I'll I'll put that in front of them. I'm like, oh, okay, why don't you read this instead of your silly little joke book over here? And they know the whole story of Fred Korematsu. But I think that's a good idea for them to um, to watch something like that. It, does one exist? I don't think so. Oh. So, but that's that's the conundrum that we've we're left with. Right. I, I think we want to be able to find resources for kids. And we have this problem at the film festival. We have a great program called Shorts for Shorties, Yes. Um, where we program 45 minutes of short films. And they're mostly fun little animation. Sometimes they're about cross-cultural issues or intergenerational issues, but in a way that's, you know, that kids will smile and laugh and their parents will feel like, oh, I'm glad I brought you out today. But it's rare. And it's always been a challenge for us. And therefore, I wonder, should you want to find those kind of works for your kids? Yes. Where would you go? What would you look for? And have you found anything that's semi-related? Well, this is why now that I'm no longer working at the film festival, I always, you know, emphasize to you, Brian, that it is important that we have family-friendly programming. And it's, we know this by experience. It's very, very difficult because most Asian Americans who create content are interested in doing gritty, angry, uh, controversial content that may not be family friendly or that kids just won't get, right? You mean you don't want to show Journey from the Fall to your kids? Well, <laughs> you know what? No, I do want to show oh, Journey okay. from the Fall. Um, and I will at some point. But for the most part, right. like when you think about independent film, you don't think family friendly. Also, I do think that family friendly content is out there, but maybe from a programming standpoint, maybe it's not indie enough or it's not, I don't know, it doesn't push the envelope enough to be worthy of coming into a film festival. Um, and, and, and truthfully, before I had children, I didn't care about family content at all. In fact, when I thought about Asian American representation and you know helping the community, I didn't think about children. Mm -hmm. I thought about high schoolers, college students, and adults. But now that I'm a mother, I do see that, you know, we, we're, this is a real, real great opportunity because these kids now, they are, they're savvy. They are savvy, and we need to give them a lot more credit and therefore find or help encourage our fellow Asian Americans to create that kind of content. And I think interestingly, and I can't think of any examples right now, but I just have this feeling from my experience that sometimes the content that's created that is family-friendly for Asian Americans is by non-Asian Americans. Right. Right. And so I think we need to change that. Yeah. And I think on that note, I'm really curious when you became interested in Nihao Kailan. Because before Shorts for Shorties at the film festival, yeah. 
you brought in episodes from Nihao Kailan. I think the first time I saw Nihao Kailan was at this film festival. Yeah, well, so in terms of diverse content coming out for kids, it, I mean, there was Dora the Explorer, right, which had Spanish words and Spanish content. So the idea of Nihao Kailan came as a result of Nickelodeon creating the show, and they, I don't know, they, I guess they just reached out to us because they wanted to make sure people knew about the show. And um, this was before I had kids. And we did an episode. And I am not kidding. I could. I, I thought there were going to be maybe three families who showed up. I could not believe the number of people who showed up at that free screening of Nihao Kailan. Line out the door around the block. Okay. I, <laughs> and it was a mixture of both Chinese families and a lot of families who had adopted Chinese children. And I thought, wow, this is, um, we have really tapped into something. And what we've tapped into is that these families want something on Saturday mornings to do besides their soccer games and besides Chinese school. They want to be able to go and have a theater experience with their children. And here was an opportunity for us to do that. And because I was exposed to Nihao Kailan, obviously, after I had kids, we started watching, and my kids ate it up. I don't know how to say the word ant, like the little bug ant in Mandarin, but one day my son was saying some word, and I didn't know what he was talking about, and he was actually pointing to ants, and he was speaking in Mandarin to me because of that show, and it was really rewarding. That happened to me, too, even <laughs> though I, I understand Mandarin to a certain extent, but there's some vocabulary that, that I don't know. Like, I didn't know how to say castle, because <laughs> when in any, you know, everyday right. conversation would I talk about castles? Right. But then we were in Vegas, and what's the Vegas Excalibur. hotel? Yeah, we passed Excalibur, and my daughter started saying something, and then my parents understood what she was saying. She's like, oh my gosh, she knows how to say castle in, in Chinese. I was like, that must have been so must, impressed. I know, I was like, that was not from us. That was from <laughs> Nihao Kailan. <laughs> so this is interesting, like, like language learning through media is so powerful. It is so powerful. And it's also like, I remember the first Asian films I ever watched were Mandarin dubbed Jackie Chan movies because my mom wanted me to be exposed to Mandarin. I don't know if that worked. I just watched a bunch of great action. But I think, I think that impetus to feel like while they're young, they can soak up languages in a way they can't in the future. And, and media, I think, is really helpful, especially in Ada's case when you couldn't have helped it yourself. Yeah, that's exactly why. Yeah, I feel like the first couple of years are like trying to keep them away from the screen, trying to not have them watch TV, but then there's a certain turning point where you kind of give up. <laughs> and you're like, okay, if you're going to watch TV, what are you going to watch? And both me and my husband were, we're Taiwanese-American, but like my Chinese is just like okay and his is worse. <laughs> so, um, so we're like, how are we going to get her to learn? And she's too young for Chinese school. So that's exactly why we, I was like, oh, we should watch this Ni Hao Kailan. And yeah, she loves it too. And it's so cute because the first sentences and phrases she said totally have that structure of Ni Hao Kailan because it's all about Kailan. There's a problem in her friend and then she she solves it, and it's, there's all this repetition, like, like, oh no, this person's sad. What are we gonna do? And that's kind of how my daughter talked for a long time, like, <laughs> oh no. Even my, you know, our second daughter came and she was crying. Oh no, 
Mei Mei is crying. What are we gonna do? We gotta gotta try to find a reason why. <laughs> like, oh my like, gosh. <laughs> we gotta go over there. Oh, <laughs> I was like, I oh my gosh, it. it's so cool. But it's kinda like I mean it's another thing where I mean she's too young to understand any of it, but yeah, I can see myself like when she gets older, me just assuming she understands because I'm like, Hey, what do you watch here? You watch Nihao Kailan and she's like an Asian girl just like you. <laughs> and also like Julie's green room. It's actually come up on the podcast before. <laughs> or it's Julie Andrews and a bunch of puppets. Oh. And it's not explicitly Asian American, but her sidekick is this biracial Taiwanese guy. Oh, young guy. how cool. So I'm like, hey, like I'm just populating all of her choices <laughs> with diverse characters. You know? <laughs> but I feel like that's her world, right? Like when she goes to her school, it's pretty diverse. I don't know how that's going to influence her growing up. I've really liked and appreciated Nihao Kailan in that it normalizes someone who's Asian and also the words, you know, so yeah. saying ni hao is, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like saying hola, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So many people now who are not Chinese at least understand ni hao and xie xie, right? Whereas I would say like 10 years ago, I don't think that's the same. 10 years ago, if they said it, it, was, it would be to mock us. Yes, it would be to mock us, but they actually know how to say these words now, and I think that's I think that's kind of cool. That it's, actually, it's actually, like, right now, this month, November, the 10-year anniversary of when Nihao Kailan came out. Oh, wow. That, <laughs> that time went by really fast. <laughs> I wish that Nihao Kailan continued its episodes because I think after a couple of years, they stopped producing new episodes. And they also did some merchandising, not as much merchandising as they did with, like, Dora the Explorer, for example. But I wish they continued that because there's a whole new generation of kids that I think Nihao Kailan could continue inspiring. And specifically as a result of that show, my then two-year-old son turned to me and said, I want to learn how to speak Chinese. That's so cool. And what kind of two-year-old would say that? And you, when the kids say something at that age, you have to listen because it's coming from a place. So luckily here in San Diego, there was a brand new public Chinese immersion school. And they are now in Chinese immersion school for their seventh or eighth year. And it's directly as a result of Nihao Kailan. Yeah, my husband, like, I think seriously, because he knows I'm like a pop cultural journalist that covers Asian American entertainment, he's always like, can we find Karen Chow and tell her we need more episodes? <laughs> That's right. I know. We and should, I always think, We should like, start yeah, a letter writing campaign. We should, because I do wonder why. There's rumors on the internet that was because there was like a lawsuit brought against Dora and then they had to cut some stuff. I don't know if it's true or not. But yeah, there's only been two seasons. And as someone who was looking for more content, not only for a language, purposes but just something like cool to show my kids at some point she's watched them all and we're like why aren't there more and I don't know in this day and age with Netflix when you bring back stuff especially animated stuff I'm always like why couldn't they bring it back Mm. (laughs) because I feel like there's not there hasn't been another show that's like Dora or Nihao Kailan that focuses on language immersion as much I don't think unless I just don't know about it Business opportunity right there, right? Come yeah. <laughs> and, and more than just Mandarin, there's so many other Asian languages as well. There are, but I think that just to be practical, yeah. you would focus on Mandarin since it is the number one language yeah. in the world. I think Not Taiwanese. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. 
<laughs> not Cantonese. But, Sorry. you know, as our kids get older, you ask, where do we find this content? And I rely on our local film festivals to do that. And this year, right. we had a show. There was a film called Bad Genius um, that was from Thailand. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, we brought out, I don't know, 30, 40 kids that were both in elementary and middle school. And most of them have probably never sat through a two-hour movie reading subtitles, yeah. right? But um, we exposed them to that, and they were engrossed. They were on the edge of their seat. Basically, Bad Genius is about these two brainiacs in Thailand who end up pulling off this major academic heist. It's about cheating. <laughs> so, and, you know, and the kids loved it. And in years past, we have gone to other films that were not Asian American, but were from Asian countries. And our kids really enjoyed it. So I think that's kind of cool, too, that they can see the world through the eyes of international children through these movies as well. We should bring it back to, because we were supposed to talk about Mulan, which we don't need to. But at the same time, I think it is kind of cool seeing Disney doing a lot more stuff. Because, you know, we do have Moana which everybody loves, Big Hero 6. Lilo and Stitch. Kubo and Three Strings. I personally made sure that my kids went out to watch that film as well. And I don't know, your kids might be too old for this, but they ever watch We Bear Bears? No, what is that? That's kind of a cool one. It's created by Daniel Chung, and it's three bears. But they have like a young girl, human friend, who's Korean-American, and they reference a lot of Asian-American stuff. Where would they find this? I think it's on Cartoon Network. I'll edit oh, that out if that's I've incorrect. never heard of it. But they play it like my cousins-in-law, they are in college, and they say they see it on screens at the gym at the college. <laughs> oh, how it's weird. It's pretty popular. Oh, that's cool. Well, I'll have yeah. to check it out. Yeah, so there's stuff like that. So, I mean, when Moana, when Mulan, Lilo and Stitch come out, there's always a contingency of Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, who say, this doesn't really represent us. You are trying to make money off of us. You're trying to show that you're being diverse, but this is not really our voice. And I think we're all very aware of this kind of backlash. Does that influence your decision to show this to your children? Or to you, it's like, let them make up their mind. I feel like I heard about the Mo I watched Moana much later. The backlash was something I read about as something that was in the past. And since then, do people still not like Moana? <laughs> Who doesn't like Moana? <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I don't think there's a huge, I don't think anyone's going to successfully keep Moana from being part of our popular culture. But I think it's just inevitable that whenever a big corporation, especially at Disney, yeah. wants to seemingly kind of carpet bag where it just seem like, you know, we are using another culture to make ourselves mm -hmm. look diverse, that some people are going to, I don't want to use the word nitpick because that makes it seem like they're doing something wrong, but like they're just especially concerned about yeah. what kind of representation I mean, that is. I think, I think that's legitimate. I, I read recently they're doing a Hawaiian language version of Moana, which is kind of cool. Um, I don't know, it's tricky because... Yeah, but what's the alternative? They don't do it at all? Like, don't do any stories about ethnic people? Because actually, the alternative is hire people who <laughs> can, you know, direct and produce it and hire consultants. I can't, I can't it's speak It's a catch-22, right? Yeah. Because you want, if they are going to go through the process of doing stories of communities of color, when it actually comes out, you want them to show through the box office dollars that it did well and there's interest in that story regardless of what the controversy or maybe they didn't fully represent that community, you kind of want to encourage them that, hey, you know what, this is a type of story that people will watch and are interested in. 
but at the same time, you don't want to support something that is offensive to a, a certain group of people. So I know how important that first weekend is, you know, in terms of box office, but I always like kind of hold back and word of mouth is so strong and powerful. So I will like just kind of turn to people from that community <laughs> and I will ask them like, hey, what did you guys think? Or I'll, I'll look on social media just to see and then make that decision. But, you know, especially if you're going to bring your kids, again, these are great opportunities for us, whether or not they are fully representative, great opportunities for us to kind of have these conversations with our children. Okay, so how did you feel about this? Did you know that this is not really how they do this? Because we do have to show them, we can't just show them perfect stories all the time, right? That's how we learned, right? We learned by watching really bad cinema or bad shows that did not represent us well. So I say, in my opinion, go out, but go out educated and then have that conversation with the kids. Yeah, well, bringing it back to Mulan, because I honestly didn't watch it until a week ago. But when you guys watched it, what was your opinion on it? Just because we're Moana, I don't feel like I can be an expert on right. how authentic and, 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 and we're experts on Mulan? No, but I mean... <laughs> but you knew the story before. before yeah, you watched I've heard Mulan. of the story. Yeah. And I feel like if they did something really offensive, it would reflect on me as like a Taiwanese Chinese I mean, woman. The right? sad thing is, when I watched Mulan, I probably was more of a Disney fan than a Taiwanese American. You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> yeah, or, or, yeah, someone, yeah. or someone who came from a Chinese background. Because when I heard the story of Mulan, it was because my parents made me know about it. Whereas I wanted to go watch The Lion King because that's what everyone was talking about. So I think I was already on Mulan's side. And if anything, if I remember like raising my eyebrow about was. Why is the dragon Eddie Murphy? And <laughs> um, I, I think by that point, it was like I was kind of over that. I think if I was younger when I watched Milan. That probably would have been funny, like Robin Williams and Aladdin. Yeah, so I think I was already on Disney's side, for better or worse. Do you remember watching it for the first time? What was your reaction? Um, Were you excited about it? I don't think I was very excited about it. I think I, um, I was much older when Mulan came out. Yeah, I didn't yeah, have yeah, kids so. yet, and I think I wanted to watch it because of the fact that we don't get to see these kind of Disney stories about people of color, you know. Um, I kind of liked Eddie Murphy as the dragon, personally. <laughs> I mean, he was, he, was, he was really funny at comical relief, but, you know, looking in retrospect, you know, you know why they did that, because they needed somebody there to help cross over, right, into different audiences. I think the one thing that I do remember, having watched it again, was I was like, concubines? <laughs> concubines and full frontal nudity. <laughs> that was off screen, of course. Those things like really impressed me from that That's film. That's funny, because yeah, the, the Hong Kong films my parents showed me had plenty of full frontal nudity. <laughs> did they really? Of I need to watch more Hong Kong films. Oh, like the Little Monk films? Yeah, yeah. There's always little boys oh, running around with their oh, pants up. Oh, little boy full frontal. Right, this is getting into a weird, weird yeah. place. <laughs> so, so, Ada, you, you watched Mulan for the first time I very know. recently. I think we've always joked about this because we also watched Joe Law Club fairly recently for the first time. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. A couple of years ago. So Mulan now, and now that you have young daughters. I know, I watched it with my daughter. And? I don't know. I was a little bit underwhelmed, but I mean, I don't think it's the best Disney movie. But I can imagine if I were younger and I really wanted to see Asian woman character on screen, I would have been really excited about it. But it's different watching it now with your kid. The scenes where you're like, don't dishonor the family. And, you know, you, you're a girl. You can't do this. I think I was like, oh, it's so mean. Nobody thinks that. <laughs> like, you're not like, take notes. 
I know, right? I almost felt like I didn't want that to represent our culture. Oh, okay. So I wonder, yeah. yeah. I, won I don't know how I would have felt. Because at that time, yeah, I was a little bit too old to be watching all of the Disney movies. And I think I just wasn't that interested because, yeah, like... Mulan was a story like your parents told you about old history. It's like something you learned in Chinese school right. that you didn't really want to go to at that point anyway, right? Yeah. But then uh, kind of thinking about how they're going to redo it, on the drive down, I listened to this podcast, Disney Origin Stories. This guy goes like all in on all of these Disney origin stories. He had read all the different Mulan translations and kind of compared it to the Disney version. And honestly, I didn't have a huge desire to watch the, was it, is it Guy Ritchie? I mean, I would watch it just to like learn about it, but it's not like I was like, oh, I'm super excited about a new Mulan thing because I hadn't even seen the cartoon. But now that I know the original stories versus what they did for Disney, now I'm kind of like, oh, I wonder if they could make the character better. For example, like the Disney version, she starts out very kind of hapless, right? Very clumsy. She can't do anything right. And then the fact that she decides to go and um, substitute for her father in the army almost seems like this last minute decision. Apparently in the original folklore, she was taught or learned martial arts from when she was a kid. So this is like someone who kind of was badass from the beginning, you know? Now I kind of wonder, oh, like, what are they going to change? And they're probably not going to go from the Disney version, right? I don't know. Who knows? Let's hope not. <laughs> that first version sounds a lot more interesting. Yeah. It? And see, it feels a lot more contemporary, despite it being, you know, the original folklore. Right. Yeah. I felt a little bit guilty being underwhelmed by it at first because Leanne gave us a recording of the interview that you did with your son and how he was like, yeah, it's good because it shows that like women can be equal and blah, blah. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, I should have felt that too, even though I didn't. But then when I heard the original story, I don't feel as bad anymore because they did really tone it down. Like the original stories, she's a lot more badass. And in the Disney version, she like becomes badass, but after a lot of weird mishaps. <laughs> it's interesting because when you watched it with your daughter, you wanted in some ways to protect her from certain images. And, you and know, it's different because it is Asian, right? But I have sons. Oh. So I don't want to see a girl who's weak, mm. but I do want them to see the story of Mulan, even the Disney version, because she, at the end, she saves the emperor, mm. you know? Mm. And then she brought honor to the family and she did it kind of on her own terms. Mm -hmm. And because of the fact that I have boys, I feel like they needed to see the film. But they watch a lot fewer Disney. Cause when it's, did they it's watch so, it? When did, they, um, when did you show it to them? Let me see. It was probably like five years ago. Because, you know, the kids, they get to an age where they just want to watch everything animated. Whatever you can. They just consume as much as they can. And so Mulan happened to be one of them. And they kind of glossed over it. But I'm, I was happy that they chose to watch it. I didn't force them. They chose to watch it despite it having a female lead character. <laughs> and hopefully it might have been because of the fact that they are in a Chinese immersion school and they do talk about the story of Mulan. That's cool. So how do we get to the next point, which is beyond expecting Disney to do it for us, but even if it's just within our own community, I mean, at the film festivals for one, but I think Netflix, Hulu, and then on YouTube have proven that you can make money on very niche audiences. And it sounds like from Leanne, what you're saying about Nihal Kalanen at our film festival years ago, that people are willing to show up and pay for it because there is a vacuum here that when Nihal Kalanen disappears, we have lost that one. Mm -hmm. We lost it eight years ago. Yeah, and we're still talking about it. Yeah, and yeah, because I was going out looking for all this stuff. Like, what could what could they watch? What's like Asian American cartoons? So yeah, watch? so I mean, like we we've programmed some of this stuff in the past, and Leanne, you were kind of involved in all these conversations, and you, you know a lot of the filmmakers. 
why do you think that there isn't this kind of content out there? I mean, you've mentioned that some Asian American filmmakers just want to be edgy, but is it more than that? Well, yeah, because they're not parents. Mm. You don't think about these things until you have kids. Right. Right, Phil? Uh, <laughs> you know, Phil, you in the audience, yes. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Phil. So that's one. And then two, I think we just live in a different world. So my kids love, love, love Ryan Higa. They can't get enough of Ryan Higa. And so I think there is content that is being made out there and that's available to our children and that represents us, but it may not necessarily make its way into a film festival. So there's two things. We want to encourage more Asian Americans to be thinking about creating this content and to think of our children as an audience, right? So not just think of like the cool hipster college age and up, you know, audience, but that there is a tremendous opportunity, tremendous business opportunity to do family-friendly programming, number one. But two is from a festival standpoint, how can the festival change to ensure that these other voices that are leaving the film world are still represented at the festival. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, I think there's a responsibility of the festival to rethink how that fits their own mission. And yeah, absolutely. I think Ada and I are always like dreaming of films that we want Richard Wong to make. Because <laughs> um, you mentioned that a lot of these filmmakers, they don't have kids. Yeah. When we look at our Facebook, that generation of filmmakers in the 90s and early 2000s, now they all have, have kids. kids. Yeah. Wouldn't it be fun if they created like a collective and we did children's books and we did like little short films with our kids? I mean, like Rich made a musical. Yeah. I mean, he should be the one making the Asian American musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rich, if you're listening, (laughs) get on it. So, you know what? But I don't think that we're having this conversation, you know, having conversations about our kids. So I think we just need to put it out there and say, why not? Our last episode was about song for ourselves, and we were thinking, yeah, this is our generation. Like, Tad Nakamura has a kid. Richard Wong has a kid. Um, What's Z Chun? It's like all these filmmakers that we, you know, at Asia Pacific are covering these filmmakers. All of them have young kids now. So what are they going to do? I, I think this is a bigger conundrum of Asian Americans' sustainability in this industry, mm-hmm. and also this industry not being set up for Asian Americans to make their second features. That sometimes you invest everything in there and then you kind of move on, or you find another way to be a part of the industry that's not necessarily in the lead creative role. And we see this all the time, and we see a lot of filmmakers burn out. And but I think there is something to be said that I don't know if any of them would want to make kids movies. They probably want to make like the next Scorsese they, movie. They want to make the Moonlight. <laughs> yeah. Or Moonlight. Not yeah. the Moulin. Yeah. But so maybe if they did, um, there would be larger networks that would be interested and that would fund. I, I, honestly, I think it would open up a whole new world of funding for them to do that. And I don't know if they wouldn't want to just because, you know, that's not what they used to do. That's I true, think once you true. have, I always say that before you have kids, you live your life in pastel. And then after you have kids, your life is in full color. And you think differently, you have empathy in a completely different way, you love differently after you have children. So I don't know, I I would throw that out there to them and challenge Z and Richard and the rest of them (laughs) to come up with some content that, that actually could be edgy for the kids themselves too. I think there's a whole kind of business model that could be created for that, you know? Well, Ada, we talked about Mr. Cookie Jar a few weeks Mr. ago. Mr. Cookie Jar. Do you know about Mr. Cookie Jar? No, yeah. I don't. <laughs> He's a rapper. Yeah. He, he makes like very magic school bus-y oh, music videos. Oh, yeah, okay. He makes them with his, like kids. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we're just totally barking up the wrong tree because we're so obsessed with film that maybe we should be talking about other kinds of media. I think so. For our um, first season when we had Michael King, 
as a guest, and he brought his two kids, because we're always trying to get kids on our podcast. They're so cute, too. <laughs> we asked them what they watched, and there was a lot of stuff on YouTube. That's um, all my kids watch. We don't even have TV anymore. So I would say that 80% of the content that they watch is on YouTube. And I think because of that, they have access to so much more than what we had. And also the good thing, I think his oldest one was starting her own YouTube channel. My son has a YouTube channel. Yeah. (laughs) For his 10th birthday, I was like, what do you want? You want cash? You want a big party? (laughs) Mom, all I want is a YouTube channel. Really? So maybe we don't really have to worry because they're just going to make their own content. (laughs) But the problem is, again, going back to like, can we have them make meaningful content? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, again, our responsibility as parents, our responsibility as a community to kind of forge ahead with these discussions that are not being had or being led at the school level or even within their own circle of friends, right? So it's about fun, but also meaningful content that they can grow from. On that note... I think that's a great call for action, not just for filmmakers, but also for us to seek out that content and also, I guess, to trust the kids to find it themselves and not worry too much about the offensive and whatever it might be. But also, like Leanne said, to know when to be there to have that conversation. Yeah, I think that's good. Like, I don't remember having conversations with my parents after we watched stuff, like after a full house, like going and talking to my parents about what we watched. And I think now, now when I hear about like my peers, you know, you having these conversations with their kids and watching stuff with their kids, I think that makes a big difference just in itself. And honestly, it, it takes your relationship with them to a whole new level, right? And because our parents didn't have those kind of conversations with us, and then we kind of turned out okay, imagine just how much more full our children's lives can be knowing what we know now and being able to have that kind of context and conversations with them. You're in for a a great (laughs) journey. No, you are in for a great journey. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think, yeah, it'll be fun. And for our listeners, Leanne's referring to Ada's future, not mine. (laughs) You too, Brian. Ladies. Ladies. (laughs) All right. Good luck, Brian. That's the moral of every episode of Saturday <laughs> School. All right. Well, thank you again, Leanne. I know you're thank you so um, very busy, but um, like I said before, I, I, I don't know who else so I'd much. rather have a conversation about this than with you. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Thank, thank you to you, Marvin. Marvin too. Thank you, Marvin. Oh, we, oh, there are people here. <laughs> Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. We have a Tiny Letter newsletter you can sign up for to get lecture notes. Tinyletter.com slash Saturday School Podcast. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sats School. Class dismissed.